the title of my talk tonight is the scarcity syndrome. Last night, Christopher was talking about um, the, the forces of the ego in the world and what they do to us. Not just to us, but also to the disadvantage as well. Our greed breeds poverty. Poverty breeds comes from scarcity as well. And he addressed his talk to the public aspects of all these phenomena, which include scarcity. Today I want to talk more about the, the personal aspects of this phenomena, not to imply in any way that it's a separate phenomena, but simply I don't want to try to chew more than I can, what is it? Bite more than I can chew. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> What are the, what is this scarcity syndrome, as I call it? Or what are its symptoms? Very simply, that we find we end up believing that is, there is not enough to go around. Not enough food, not enough time, not enough love, not enough health, not enough happiness, not enough things, not enough money, you name it. We create this perception for ourselves. And, and, and let me examine that in, in specifics, starting with specifics that we encounter in the retreat starting with what happens at lunchtime. <laughs> there is this fear, I've known it, I'm sure some of you have, that there won't be enough food. Uh, added to that, the fear that the fellow on the line ahead of us is going to take the last bit. So when we get to the lunch table, we overfill our plate. We put more than we can possibly handle. And though all this grasping for food is, is totally for no good reason. In fact, I think in the history of IMS, nobody has ever gone hungry. Maybe there will be a first time, but it hasn't been yet. Overfed, for sure. <laughs> so, here we have created scarcity in our minds. And let's try to examine why we do it, how we do it, and how we do it in, in a variety of different circumstances. And you will see that it's, I hope you will see that it's all really the same process.
the, the process starts by wanting. And wanting is what makes the ego come up. What Christopher was referring to yesterday as the rebirth. The birth, the becoming of the I. You know the famous uh, statement by Descartes, I think, therefore I am. I think it's much rather, I grasp, therefore I exist. I crave, therefore I exist. I am attached, therefore I exist. I have an aversion, therefore I exist. This is mine. Therefore, I am me. And it's a reinforcing circle. If mine makes the me, the I, arise, then the I has this investment in existing, because that's in the nature of the ego, an investment in existing. And therefore, it reinforces the process of possession, of grasping, of going after, of wanting. And so the ego sort of blows itself up. Ego, somebody who's really not us, but who surely imperson impersonates us. It's as if the ego invented itself. In this circle of reinforcement, scarcity plays a, a vital role because it'd be very difficult for this wanting to go on and on unless there's scarcity. Just, just one example that's been reported to me. Very often, people who work in a chocolate factory hate chocolate. And to hate chocolate must be really quite, quite a phenomena. The saturation takes away the fun of it. The, the pursuit of things is also enhanced by competition. You bring in plenty, and what's the point of competing? So, scarcity is the process that validates to us, because we want it to be validated, this process of grasping, of wanting, of reaching out. And so, we persist in cultivating it. We make this collective agreement that we are all going to have some scarcity so that our egos can flourish. Look what happens uh, with another item in the retreat, time. Strange things we do with time. Very often, in fact, the problem with time is not that there is too little, it's that there is too much. It's a problem of aversion, just the other side of the coin 
of, of wanting. And with the excess of time, we have this time in our hands, that's expression. Never seen anybody with times in their hands, but we feel it's that way. With that aversion to having too much time comes too little patience. We have scarcity of patience, the other side of the coin. We grasp for whatever we can get, entertainment or whatever. And we, instead of sitting, just sitting, we sit in waiting for the gong to strike. It's almost like prisoners in cells. I've been a prisoner in one cell and I've done this. Marking, slash, every day, just to, to see when it's going to be over. So you can... Maybe somebody has these slashes in the bedroom, I don't know. <laughs> Nine slashes and you're off. <laughs> but then when finally the gong rings, when finally one is off, the whole structure of time that we have constructed as if it was so real, collapses, vanishes. There's no use for it. Then we stop waiting. And we just are sitting there very comfortably. No problem. The back pains are gone, <laughs> etc. <laughs> occasionally, it's the other way around. Same problem of scarcity. This time, with this, this way around, with too little time. Because maybe we are having these fabulous daydreams. Or, oh, we have to solve a problem, and we decided we're going to solve the problem this week. So time seems to be short. <laughs> now, we fear the bell. We, you know, it's the worst thing that can happen. And we invent that time is in short supply. So not only do we invent time to begin with, but invent it in short supply, naturally, because that was the whole point of the exercise, anyway. We say time is running out. And the ego solidifies around this. It, it, it is really a bonus for the ego to have time, time to go after, to run after, to want it. And then there are sittings when we just are there. We just are there. And time doesn't enter at all. It doesn't make sense. So, there we are. Of course, there is some, some usefulness for time. I, I mean, there's uh, some agreement between all of us that when the hands of this clock will be in a certain position, I'm going to stop babbling. And, and, and I, I keep looking at the time quite... Uh, appropriately there, and without inventing anything. But in fact, it's not the time that I look at, it's the position of the hands in the clock. A very <laughs> simple thing. It is a very different thing. It's, not, it's just like, like say, when, when, 
when uh, Shada whistles, I'm going to stop talking. That's it. Now, if at this moment you are looking at your watch, then there's a different story. Because you're probably wondering, when is this fellow going to stop, stop talking, you see? I, I, so there's a, a shortage of patience there. Or, on the contrary, oh, well, what a shame, there's so little time left. <laughs> I'm not going to ask which is which is the <laughs> We do something very similar with space around here. It's a space in the hall. We're coming here early because of Front row seats are in short, in short supply. And then the, the crowdedness of space. We feel, we can begin to feel crowded. Not everybody, but there's a possibility of feeling crowded, feeling threatened, because that territory that has been defined by the mat may be invaded or is too close. I've, I've heard stories like that. I'm, I'm sure you know. And, uh, you know, the wish of creating a fence around the mat. <laughs> Short space, crowdedness. And as we do in the hall, we do in our minds as well. It can feel so cluttered in there. So much stuff, we believe, has been accumulated there. That's the way we perceive it. But again, we feel a shortage of space there. And then again, we have those sittings when all this stuff drops out. And we talk about spaciousness. But of course it's spacious. After, after everything, all that shortage disappeared. It's infinite. Space is infinite. There was some talk today in the group, who don't remember it was today or yesterday, but recently in the group, about connectedness, about a shortage of connection in the retreat. Certainly, there is a, an agreement that there will be no conversation, so there is no verbal communication among yogis, or rarely so in a group, but not extensively. And this is lived as a, as a deprivation. And, and there's often little attention paid to all the other forms of communications that are available, which include the silence, which include those little imperceptible gestures, which include the sheer presence with each other, together, for all these days. But the ego is not interested in that. What the ego wants is to confirm once again that there's a shortage 
and to deal with that in the ego ways. Victim of the shortage, I'm going to defeat the shortage, whichever way. And again, when, when the ego subsides, when we are really in those places where the ego plays no role, where the I has nothing to do or say, then the, the loneliness vanishes. And we are, as alone as we are, but not wanting anymore. We don't create a, a drama around the shortage of verbal communication. Just extending the observations to outside the retreat, and, and I, I, I go through a number of aspects of this uh, um, scarcity syndrome just, just to bring home the universality of it. How, we, how almost anything is grist for the mill of the scarcity syndrome. So let, let me look at things in the world, what include things that happened here in the retreat, of course, like, like issues around food. And the same things happen, of course, in the world, in our home or wherever it is, as they happen here. And also there's, a, and many people report this, various eating syndromes, which are really eating disorders, I'm sorry, meant to say that, eating disorders which are, are really appropriately called ego syndrome, uh, ego disorders. Anorexia, which uh, uh, a recent book uh, calls uh, starving for attention. It certainly has very much to do with the ego. The, which is, of course, eating very little. The opposite is uh, overeating, compulsory, compulsory overeating, or, or a variety of that, that's bulimia. And, and these two things are not that different. They all just place around the scarcity issue. So much so that there's a, there's a great overlap among people who are anorexic and people who are bulimic. The same people tend to go from one thing to another, just playing on both ends of that particular syndrome. With time, we do the same thing in the world, of course. We are forever saying, what happened to this day? This day is gone. We say that often in dismay. Oh, we need a whatever, 34-hour day or 28-hour day. I say, I don't do anything, make anything better. And, and yet, we keep making this so-called time scarce by occupying every minute of it. The, the very same movement that makes us complain makes us also make sure that our time, time, whatever it is, hours of the day are taken up fully. 
And in that, the ego thrives. Suddenly, one day, unexpectedly, we get a day off, we get fired, we are forced to retire, and you know exactly what happens. We are desperate, we are devastated. We have times in our, time in our hands again. And that doesn't make us happy at all. In fact, the ego has to look around for something else to do. We were, we are deprived of the opportunity to fabricate a shortage. We are deprived of an opportunity to look at our watch every little while. And in looking at our watch, making the ego reborn. I've always been intrigued by the people who have these beeping watches. They beep every hour. And as I was preparing this talk, it dawned on me that there are people who want to make sure that they and everybody around them gets reborn on the, on the hour, every hour. <laughs> Drop the ego package and time as a perceived reality drops out too. Time remains, sure enough, as a, a, a matter of convenience. Where are the hands of this clock? I will tell them, is when I'm going to do this or that. Or what are the numbers in my wristwatch? It will tell me when I do this or that. But giving time no more substance. Allowing time just to be a measure, a, a resource to measure, and a renewable one. A renewable one. Something that doesn't run out. And then there is love. Is there a shortage of love? We ask our hearts, it'll say no. But look at the reality. Look at how we deal with people that we say we love. What we do? More often than not, we find opportunities to withhold that love. We ration it very clearly with children. We do that. We give the love, but on condition. You do this to me, then I love you. You don't do this to me, I don't love you. And, and it's shocking how often parents put it almost in these words to their children. Perhaps we adults don't do that so obviously to each other, but it's there, but we just don't admit it. We use love as a carrot, with children and with adults. Not necessarily always, I'm just, just describing this way of being, this ego way of being. And, of course, Carrots are not going to work if you have too many around. 
you have to have one that's dangling from the stick. I remember when our children were little, they would ask, Mom, Dad, who do you love a little more? (laughs) (laughs) They learned the lesson. They picked it up. Love is a finite commodity. Just a week or so ago, I was uh, helping with the family retreat, and a mother reported exactly the same thing to me, that that's what the children, her children ask her. It's, it's not a surprise that in meta-meditation there is this emphasis on not leaving out our enemies. You know, meta-meditation, sorry, for those of you who don't know the word, is a meditation extending love to others, extending what's called loving-kindness in the standard translation. Meta means loving-kindness. So, when we do a loving-kindness meditation, we make sure that among those we extend our love to are our enemies. And that is a very important, significant statement that we are not rationing love. Love is there to be had. That's the only genuine article. It is renewable, it is replenishable. The more you use it, the more you get. With health, we do a very similar number. We expect it to run out uh, on us any moment. We, We really close our eyes to the fact that our bodies have an incredible capacity to regulate, to repair, and to heal. And yet, at least for the ordinary medical profession. This is not in the picture. It is as if we are as impotent as a car is to repair itself. So a car has to go to a mechanic. We have to go to equivalent of a mechanic. And of course, it's not, not surprised that we are, but many of us behave like hypochondriacs, including me. You know, it's just like, like for the car too, you hear this funny noise immediately. <laughs> I'm worried, right? <laughs> and, and yes, we do refuse to be cheered by the fact that we are renewable. That is to say, that eventually we're going to be eaten by worms. It's... Ego doesn't relish this uh, perspective, (laughs) indeed. But it's a fact. It's exactly, that's the way we are renewable. We we repair until one one day in the cycle of things requires that that we get 
recycled somehow. <laughs> and, and, and death here plays a very important role. As death gets closer, of course, one, one way we can behave is that we can go into a great panic. And it happens. But also, there are other times that death really shakes us to the point of making us, bringing us to the point that we have to see through all this scarcity construct. And suddenly, we allow ourselves in the understanding of our renewability, in that discovery, we allow ourselves to come into the abundance of life. And sometimes, I remember a story that Christopher told in one of his interview books, and I haven't been able to get a hold of it again, about a woman who was uh, with cancer in Italy. It's a very touching story, and I'm sorry I cannot recall it in details, but how suddenly the proximity of the end of her life as she knows it was a, a liberation, was a gift for her. No more scarcity there. Oh. I forgot to bring a, my show and tell, and that's a shame. Well, I have to, to tell it to you anyway. As I was coming here, oh, this has to do with happiness. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll tell you. Let me introduce that. Um, of course, the word happiness can be used in many different words, ways, but I'm talking about the sort of the, the fabricated happiness that we that we want to have, the, the, the happiness that is part of the ego-wanting process. Um, happy is a happiness that I always picture as an indefinite frozen smile in the face, like a, a cheese that, uh, <laughs> for a, a video camera, so that it has to be prolonged. Um, and as I was coming here, I had to stop in Albany to wait for a bus. So there in the newsstand was a magazine called The Sun with a big colored headline uh, about the happiness pill. And... Uh, Sorry, it's upstairs in my room. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it said uh, a number of things about it, but then in smaller subtitles in the same big colored front page, this is a big banner headline, said that the manufacturers were concerned about something or other, and that the authorities were going to regulate it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so trans 
transparent. It is inconceivable that there could exist a happiness pill that is not scarce. Happiness has to be something difficult to get, clearly. I, I could, but I'm not surely not going to go into because of, as I said before, not biting more than I can chew. This time I got it right. Uh, something that's really quite important here is that um, is in, in, sort of in the public area, in the market area, the fabricated scarcity of things and of money. Um, but to go into that, I'd have to go into a very complex process because this fabrication is not just done by ourselves, but is done in collusion with each other and with social forces, of course. Um, but so transparent. Let me just, just mention one item in this story. I don't know how many of you remember the oil crisis some, what, 15 years ago or so? 20, 20 years ago. Some, some of you may not have lived through that, but anyway, um, it, at that time, we were told that the reserves of oil were being depleted and then we were going to run out of oil, of gas, of petrol, or whatever you call it. And so this was labeled the energy crisis or the oil crisis. And the speed mileage, the speed limit was brought down to 55 miles an hour throughout the U.S. And it's mostly stayed there, with a few exceptions until now, so that we could conserve this precious material. Suddenly, the whole reason for that, which was purely economical, which had nothing to do but with price, disappeared because of political economic considerations. And nobody in the following 20 years has said anything about us running out of, uh, of petrol, of oil. It's amazing. So, I have brought you to look into the fabricated scarcity of food, and, of food, of time and space, of connection and love, of health and happiness, broached onto the issue of commodities and money, which is a very wide and important one, in and out of retreats. I have tried to, to bring home to you this phenomenon of the mind fabricating scarcity where there is none. Or in the case of the oil crisis, I just mentioned, of, of the collective mind and social forces doing that. Of the mind giving power to the ego which in turn finds it so useful for its own aggrandizement 
to make us believe that there's a shortage of whatever. So with this shortage, life is seen, seen as an uphill struggle. It's something really difficult. A constant craving making us heroes or victims. Exactly just what the ego ordered. In fact, uh, in a group this morning, this very issue came up. Somebody, as happens other times, reporting that they felt that um, if there wasn't uh, any difficulty, any struggle, they were wasting the time right here. They weren't doing anything worthwhile doing. Too easy. Is all this in our best interest? I would say no, without any doubt. Still, it's important for each one to find out. For each one, as a direct experience, to explore these areas when each one of you creates a shortage for themselves. Whether it's of, it is of time, whether it is of health, whether it is of love, whatever. And explore whether that shortage is really there or is a concoction of the mind. And if we should drop this way of looking at life as a constant shortage, as a constant scarcity, what are we left with? A moment ago, before the talk, as I often do about this time, I went to the woods just to check it out. I come here in April and then and Christopher and at this time of the year too and, and the woods look very different. But whatever happens in April or whatever happens in August, whatever is there is as it need be. It's nothing in excess, nothing too little. It is true that one can go to the woods and project onto that situation, project onto that environment a perception of scarcity. This is, in, in the modern version, this is of course the Darwinian story. Charles Darwin is a, to whom is attributed this idea, oh, rightfully so, it's attributed the, the perception that nature is a constant struggle, that there's nothing but competition there. I should know about this projection because for about nearly 30 years I've taught this nonsense to generations of students. I, I used to be a, <laughs> a geneticist. And I know how one can project these things. 
I, and, and I also know where that projection comes from. And I guarantee you that it doesn't say anything about the woods back there. It says about the mind right here that projects that. Another scarcity into the woods. Another shortage. Another need for competition. But in fact, what one sees in the woods, if one is open to what the woods are saying, is an incredible renewability of nature. And if we drop this scarcity perception, then we can really, personally, join that renewability be part of it, including our birth and our death and our transformations. And no scarcity there. May all beings get tired of inventing scarcities. May all beings come to understand what renewability is. May all beings be free. We'll sit for a few minutes, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.